Right, well, the room is going quiet, so perhaps we should start. Uh, can you hear me at the back? Svetozar, can you hear me at the back? Yeah? Good. Um, well, warm welcome to this uh, evening's event, then. Why remember Reflections on the First World War Centenary? Um, and the way we're going to play this is that we have three speakers who are going to speak for 15 to 20 minutes each. I've warned them that I'll stop them if they go on beyond 20 minutes. Um, and then we will have a, a panel discussion and questions from the audience, and we will finish by 8 p.m. Um, my name's Professor David Stevenson, and I'm a uh, professor in the International History Department here. Um, I'll be introducing our three speakers in a moment. Um, unfortunately, we were originally hoping to have four speakers, but sadly, because of uh, personal circumstances, um, uh, Lily Kuloriaki is not able to be here tonight. But still, we have a very strong panel um, of big experts in the field and who I hope will provide us with a very good discussion. Um, I should mention that there will be quite a lot of events connected with the First World War centenary at the LSE, um, not only during the Literary Festival, uh, but also after the Literary Festival is finished, um, the International History Department is organising two more panel discussions, one of which will be next week, um, on the 5th of March, um, and that will be on the global impact of the First World War, the emphasis, if you like, on the world element of the war. And there will be another discussion on the 30th of April, uh, which will be on the legacy, the longer-term cultural and political repercussions. And then on the 6th of May, there will be more details of this in the next events booklet. As you know, this comes out before each term. Um, but on the 6th of May, there will be a further event, which will be actually on the LSE experience, on the LSE's war between 1914 and 1918, which is quite an interesting story and has all sorts of connections with the origins of the Labour Party, for example, in this country and Fabianism. So those are further events to take account of, and I think you should also have a, literature, have a leaflet about the digital exhibition um, that is being run concurrently um, by the LSE Library. Now, tonight's event, then, um, we've entitled it Why Remember? Reflections on the First World War Centenary. Um, by now, you should be well aware, uh, unless you're living on another planet, that we are in the middle of the First World War centenary. Um, the BBC alone uh, are commissioning 2,500 hours of programming on the theme of the centenary, running from, 19, from 2014 to 2018. This is going to be the biggest broadcasting initiative, I think, that the BBC have ever undertaken. Um, David Cameron announced back in 2012 uh, a programme of £50 million, in fact, I think more, of public expenditure, despite what he said, as he would, that these are straightened circumstances, but nonetheless he felt it important that these monies should be released um, in three major directions. First of all, for a major new um, public gallery, set of public galleries on the First World War at the Imperial War Museum, which has become the kind of lead institution in the centenary in this country. 
Secondly, um, he referred to a plan for promoting the memory of the war in schools, and particularly, as you will know, there's a project for uh, pupils, representative students from every secondary school in the country to visit the battlefields of France and Belgium. Um, And thirdly, a programme of centenary events um, linked through six key dates, the commemoration of the outbreak of the war, the Gallipoli landings in 1915, the Battle of the Somme, the Battle of Jutland, the Third Battle of Ypres, the Battle of Passchendaele, and the conclusion of the war. And this, of course, is just in this country, and you will find many other examples overseas. The centenary has become an international phenomenon. In many countries, particularly Australia and New Zealand and France, the amounts of expenditure are considerably more, I think, than in this country, though there are others where it's significantly less. If one looks at Germany or the United States or Russia, the picture is very different. And one of the things I hope that will emerge in the panel tonight will be the points of international comparison. On the question of why remember and why this money should be spent, David Cameron gave three points, and I think it's worth perhaps bearing these in mind as a first draft of an answer to this question. The first thing that he mentioned was the sheer scale of sacrifice. That certainly in British history, it's different for other countries, but in British history there is nothing really comparable to the three-quarters of a million dead, and many more times that number, wounded, of course, and permanently psychologically crippled in one means or another. That's from the British Isles alone. From the British Empire, more than a million. That was the first point that he made, the scale of sacrifice. The second point he made was the war's continuing relevance and impact not only in the British Isles, but also globally. There's been a very interesting British Council report, if you go to the British Council website, about the worldwide impact and continuing relevance of the events between 1914 and 1918. And the third point that he made was this is an affair of the heart. We've just been, um, earlier on this afternoon, I've been to a uh, reflections on the World War I centenary between 4.30 and 6 this afternoon where we had an art historian and a playwright talking about how to represent the war and the emotional impact that it had and which they wanted to convey that many people, Cameron argued in the British Isles, still f- for them the First World War is something they can't think of or can't get into without in some way setting a prickle in the spine maybe because members of their family were intimately connected with it. And, of course, almost every family in the British Isles between 1914 and 1918 was in some way affected. So those are three things, yeah? I think this is as good as a starting point. We may want to add further as we go on. But my sort of final point, before I open up the path to our speakers, commemoration itself is worth thinking about. Why do we remember anything? what makes us different, what makes us human. One of the things that distinguishes humans from all kinds, I think, of animals is that we bury our dead. And we began to do that very early in the evolution of the human species. If we don't commemorate the First World War, what is worth commemorating? Is there anything like this which has shaped us so strongly and so intimately in modern British history? Again, modern British. It's different for other countries. Now, what we're going to do is to focus really, um, to start off with, we're going to look at the impact of the outbreak of the war, and Margaret Macmillan will lead on that. Secondly, we'll be looking at the aftermath of the war, 
and the Peace of Versailles and the role in it of the American President Woodrow Wilson and its role in shaping both the practice of international relations and the theory of international relations. And Michael Cox will be leading that. And thirdly, we'll be looking at the interconnection between the First World War and war memory and nationalism, cultural as much as political, the central force in shaping the modern world, and the importance of war and war memory and commemoration and sacrifice in the cults of nationalism that have developed and continue to be important around the world, and John Hutchinson will be leading that section of the discussion. So we'll be going roughly in chronological order, but we'll also be broadening out the focus as we develop. And then we will come to a concluding discussion in which I hope members of the audience will feel able to ask questions and make comments and participate. So to begin with then, Professor Margaret Macmillan, who's warden of St. Anthony's College, Oxford, professor of international history at Oxford University, author of a number of distinguished books, including on the Peace Conference of 1919, and her most recent work, um, a brand new and major new study of the outbreak of the First World War, called very appropriately, The War That Ended Peace. Thank you very much, and it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, Professor Stevenson has, and David Cameron between them have said some of what I want to say, um, that the war is something that haunts us, and I think that's very much tied up with the extent of the war, the scale of the losses, the lasting effects of the war. I think also that it left a world that was very different from the world of before, and I think we look back at the pre-war years, that long century of peace, prosperity and progress in Europe and wonder why they threw it away. Europe has never really recovered from that. It's never really recovered its position in the world. Before 1914, Europe was, particularly Western Europe, the most powerful part of the world. It dominated much of the world, either directly through empire or indirectly through informal empires of trade, investment, influence, Europe was the center of world science and technology. It was where you came if you wanted to learn. It was the Mecca for people from around the world. We perhaps overestimate how golden those years were before 1914. They were not all wonderful, and they were not all wonderful for everyone. There were many inequities in societies, and there were developments, very, very patchy developments. But I think it is fair to say that we look back at the years before 1914, and we see a century that was really unusual in Europe's history. Most centuries in Europe had been marked by revolution, by war, by civil war. And the 19th century, yes, it had had wars, yes, there had been uprisings, there had been civil unrest, but on the whole, it had been a very good century for Europe. And the century that came after was a very, very bad century for Europe and a very bad century for the world. And so I think one of the reasons why the First World War haunts us is because we try and make sense of it, and we have that sense that something was thrown away that needn't have been thrown away, um, but was thrown away in those awful years of war between 1914 and 1918. I think we're also haunted by it because we have a sense that somehow there was a carelessness and a heedlessness about the way in which they went into war in 1914 that they didn't realize, those who were making the decisions and and many of those who supported them, they didn't realize what they were getting into. They hadn't thought clearly and deeply and carefully enough about what such a war might look like. There had been warnings 
there had been warnings that technology and simple things like barbed wire and the spade were making the power of the defense so strong that it was getting very difficult and very costly to attack and that those who were going to attack, who were going to try and storm well-defended positions, were going to take dreadful losses. There had been evidence of this from the American Civil War on, and indeed even two years, one year before the First World War broke out in wars in the Balkans. And a number of military had in fact worried about this, but they had tended to assume that somehow they could deal with it. Um, It wasn't so much optimism, I think, as a desperate sense that they didn't know how else to try and deal with what was at the time giving a tremendous advantage to the defensive. And so rather like gamblers, I think, they went into the First World War thinking perhaps we can break through, perhaps we can win some decisive battles, perhaps we can avoid the stalemate which we fear. And I think that again is is something that haunts us because we look at those men, many of them of course very young, marching off to war in 1914 and then of course they kept marching off to war and, and we think did they have no sense of what it was they were getting into? They went, many of them, I think, thinking that war would be glorious, that it would settle something, that there would be victories, there would be decisions, there would be a peace made. And what they got, in many cases, of course, was death, but what their societies got was this dreadful, long slug. And it was a war which, I think, because of its horrors and because it was a war fought largely by literate populations, produced a great literature Um, Some of the best literature written in the 20th century was written because of the First World War, great poets, great memoirs. It also produced great art. Some of the paintings, we can see them in London with Paul Nash, for example, who managed to capture what those shattered battlefields looked like. And so I think we have in our memories some very powerful images of what that war meant. But I think there's another reason, too, that it haunts us and that is because we still don't understand why it happened. There are many arguments. Professor Stevenson has been part of those arguments. I've been part of those arguments. Books are coming out all the time. It's been estimated, I don't know how accurate a guess it is, that there's something like 30,000 works in English alone on the origins of the First World War. And that will give you an indication of the sorts of arguments, the persistence of the arguments that go on. We have, as yet, no clear consensus among historians about why the war started, and I don't think there ever will be. We are much clearer about the origins of the Second World War, except for a few sort of mavericks every so often who say, no, it really wasn't um, Hitler's fault or it wasn't really the fault of Mussolini. They didn't really want war. I think on the whole we would agree that the Second World War was brought about by very deliberate policies on the part of certain nations and that those who ended up opposing them, such as Britain, and France really didn't want to go to war at all in 1939. We do not have that consensus on the War of 1914. One of the reasons, I think, that makes it so difficult to come to any determination is there are so many possible causes of the First World War. And you can look and pick through the, the, the decades before 1914, and you can find the alliance systems. Were they to blame for the war? And a whole theoretical literature has sprung up looking at the ways in which Europe was dividing itself up into not very tight alliance systems, but into different camps. And I think we get endless speculation about was there a structural failure here? Um, Was there something inherently unstable in a balance of power which is going to inevitably lead to war? And of course, these have potential lessons for us today, if if that was the case. But there are those who argue that it wasn't the alliances so much. It was was national rivalries, and that the alliances themselves were were rather unstable. Um, One of the things that is clear by 1914 is that some of the 
key figures in the alliances were worried about losing their alliance partners. The British were very pessimistic about whether or not they would still have a friendship with Russia the following year. There were real tensions in what was in those days called Persia, today is called Iran, between the British and the Russians, and a number of people in the Foreign Office were convinced that Russia and Britain would go back into what was an older pattern of suspicion, enmity, um, rivalries in Central Asia and possibly rivalries um, down as far as Afghanistan. The French were worried about losing Russia as an ally too. The French fear was rather different. The French fear was that Russia was getting stronger, which it was, and that if Russia got much stronger, it wouldn't need France. Germany was worried about losing Austria-Hungary as an ally, partly because, as the German foreign minister said, we have nowhere else to go. We have no other friends. Um, Why have we allied ourselves with that ramshackle monarchy on the Danube? Well, he said, we can't do much else. The Italians were very uncertain about being part of the Triple Alliance with Germany and Austria-Hungary because, in many ways, Austria-Hungary was a hereditary enemy of Italy. The Germans, the the Austro-Hungarians, were not all that fond of Germany. The two countries actually had fought in the middle of the 19th century. And so you got a very unstable system in Europe. That wasn't, I think, um, the entire reason for the war. Others have pointed to the arms race, which was part of the rivalry, and there was an intensified arms race in the period before 1914. But arms races don't necessarily produce war. The Cold War saw a tremendous arms race, which did not, in fact, produce war, which produced a sort of stability. So you could argue that arms races are, in fact, a way of creating mutual deterrence, or, as they called it in the Cold War, mutual assured destruction. It was, after the First World War, um, commonplace in certain circles to blame the war itself on arms manufacturers, who, it was said, had stirred up wars so they'd be able to sell more weapons. In fact, in my view, arms manufacturers don't need wars, they just need a state of tension. And in a way, a state of tension is better than war because they can then sell to both sides. Well, it's, it's it, you know, when you think of it, um, you know, they, they're losing markets when a war actually breaks out. They may be gaining some, but they do, they do lose markets. I mean, Krupp, the great German arms manufacturer, not only helped to build the fortifications of the Belgian forts, it also built the guns that were going to destroy them. Um, from Krupp's point of view, an ideal situation. It was making money from both sides. Another factor which has come in is nationalism and national rivalry. In the period before 1914, in fact, the whole end of the 19th century, was a period of heightened nationalism. And this was tied, I think, to a growing participation by the public in the politics and in the opinion-making in their own countries. Growing communications, growing literacy, improvements in education, the appearance of the mass media. And in Moscow, which we tend to think of as very backward power in 1914, in Moscow, in, in Russia, in Moscow alone, the largest na- daily newspaper in 1914 was selling 800,000 copies, which is extraordinary when you think of, of what that must have meant, um, because usually each newspaper is read by more than one person. So nationalism, I think, was a factor. And what you got in the schools and in the universities like this and people like me and people like my colleagues here on the platform, um, we got people writing and teaching national histories. Most of the history taught in Europe was, was national history rather than international. We got learned ethnographers, learned historians, learned linguists creating stories of a nation which they said had been there for centuries, unchanged in its essence. In his great lectures in Berlin, which were attended 
not only by students, but by many of the leaders of society. And von Treitschke, the great German historian, argued that there had always been something called a German people, right back to the time of the Romans, and it had always been a noble people. It had always showed certain characteristics. And if you feel this, then what you tend to do is elevate your own nation into something superior. What you also do is you look for enemies, because what nationalism of this sort tends to imply is that you have those who want to destroy your nation or you have perhaps natural enemies. And this was also fostered by social Darwinist ideas which were taken over um, improperly, unscientifically, but were nevertheless very powerful from Darwin's series on evolution. And so you got French intellectuals arguing that Germans were the hereditary enemy of France or you got French military attaches in Germany sending reports back to Paris saying what can we do the Germans are our hereditary enemies just as species in nature have natural predators so too do nations and so you got I think a heightened nationalism which put pressures on governments I mean governments found themselves I think with less freedom of maneuver than they would have had say, during the Napoleonic Wars, when they they now were under much more pressure from their own publics. Lobby groups would push in Britain or in Germany or in France for more spending on the military, for more aggressive policy on colonies. You also got a series of fears rippling through Europe's population. It was not as easy a time before 1914 as we sometimes think. Fear of revolution, fear of international terrorism, in many ways very similar fears to the fears we have today of international religious, religiously inspired terrorism. The terrorists could be anywhere. They could look like us. We didn't know what they were going to do next. There were also, I think, periodic invasion scares. In Britain, um, up until 1904, um, the British feared a French invasion. A wonderful book written in the 1890s um, portrayed, it was a a novel, but it it sold very well, Um, the French invading on a weekend because the French were very unsporting. And the government would be away at whatever people in governments did in those days, shooting poor little birds or um, doing something with fish um, or whatever um, the upper classes were doing in those days. Um, The French invaders in this particular novel would be aided by the Irish nationalists who would cut the telegraph wires to London. Mm -hmm. And so by the time the cabinet came drifting back in on Monday morning, the whole of London would be in the hands of the French invaders. After 1904, as Britain mended fences with France and Germany became the chief menace, it was German invasion that Britain feared. And rumors would sweep through Britain, reported in the press, widely believed that, for example, you had to look very carefully at nuns in their habits because you would often see German army boots poking out under the skirts. My favorite one of these was that in the restaurants of London, there were said to be 50,000 German officers disguised as waiters. You can imagine what would happen if you didn't eat your soup. Um, any rate, you, you do get, I think, a number of factors which made Europe uneasy, which were pushing towards war. Having said that, in fact, Europe had quite successfully avoided war before 1914. There had been a series of crises, two crises over Morocco, a crisis over Bo- the, the, the annexation of Bosnia by Austria-Hungary, and then two very serious crises in the Balkans in 1912 and 1913. And something of the old concert of Europe had survived. There had been diplomatic exchanges, there had been conferences of ambassadors, and peace had been maintained. And I think that was very dangerous in a funny way, because when the crisis of 1914 came around, I think there was a very dangerous complacency. We've survived these crises. It's another crisis in the Balkans. It's not actually going to matter that much. I think it didn't help that the Archduke, whose assassination set off the crisis, 
was assassinated on the 28th of June. That was late. A lot of people were on summer holidays, and a lot of people assumed it was probably too late for a war. Most of Europe's wars in the 19th century and, and in centuries before had been fought in the early summer months and had been decided by the end of the summer. You didn't want to fight a war in the winter. And so a lot of people thought June 28th, by the time we actually you know, could even think about a war, it would be another month, it's getting too late for a war. And so I think there was a sort of complacency. What also came out, I think, of the successful managing of the crises was an assumption that deterrence and bluff worked. I've discovered this wonderful thing called Ngram. I don't know if you've come across it. It's Google Ngram. And you can plot, you can, you can see how often a word occurs in different languages. And I looked for, for the use of bluff and deterrence between about 1890 and 1914. It's almost flatlined before 1890, and it just goes up very, very sharply before 1914, which I think says something. I don't think it was all just people playing board games or poker. I think there was actually something in this. And so I think there was a sense that we just have to bluff, we'll mobilize, we'll threaten to do something. The dangerous thing, of course, about bluff is what if someone calls it? What do you do then? Do you back down or do you go ahead? And that's what they were facing in the summer of 1914. And I think the final thing that came out of successfully managing crises before 1914 was that in certain quarters there was now a determination we are not going to back down this time. You have the Tsar of Russia saying to his mother after the Bosnian crisis when Germany had threatened Russia, next time I won't let it happen. You have Kaiser Wilhelm in Germany saying repeatedly to his friend Alfred Krupp, I will not back down, I will not back down, I will not back down. And so I think you get a combination of circumstances in the summer of 1914. We still can't pick out the key ones, and I think that is why the war will continue to haunt us, because, of course... The real fear we have is we might do something as awful again. Thanks. Uh, well, thank you very much indeed, Margaret, for getting us off to that start and raising many issues about the outbreak of the First World War and why it continues to haunt us. Can you still hear me at the back? Yeah. So next we're going to move on to Professor Mick Cox, um, who's going to fast forward, if you like, to the circumstances at the end of the First World War. Um, Mick is now a professor uh, emeritus uh, from the International Relations Department here. He wanted me pr particularly to remind you that before becoming to the LSE, he'd been uh, a professor at Aberystwyth. And the reasons for that and the Welsh connection will be unfolded in what he has to say. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you, David, and thank you, Margaret, for that, uh, for that wonderful introduction. In a review of the many recent books uh, written about World War I, including one of the more outstanding by our visiting speaker here tonight, Margaret, Richard Evans observed that following decades of contention relating to the origins of World War I, it, was no, it no longer appears to be either intellectually fashionable or academically credible, even politically correct perhaps, to suggest that the main or real cause of World War I was Germany and German plans for world power. We have, it seems, and with a few exceptions, moved beyond the blame game. It happened to our divorce laws in Britain in the 1980s. Now it has happened in the debate about the origins of World War I. 
Yet even if we no longer have a simple story to tell about German war guilt, we can, I think, agree with David Stevenson's judgment that the war was, by any measure, the greatest event of its time, not only for what happened during it, but also for its subsequent impact, whose global repercussions, as David observed, extended down to 1945 and arguably to the collapse of Soviet communism and the end of the Cold War, possibly beyond. Few would quibble with this judgment. Indeed, whether we want to talk of a simple causal connection or a more subtle form of relationship between the war on the one hand and what followed on the other, nothing after 1918, from communism to fascism, the World Depression to the Cold War, perhaps even the Holocaust itself, makes very much sense without reference back to the Great War. By any measure, it is a fairly grisly legacy. Now, my task here tonight is not to be Pollyanna, looking for the best or the good in everything. Not every cloud has a silver lining, after all, as people in Somerset have recently discovered. <laughs> but rather to explore what I see as one of the more positive results to come out of the war. And this connects to the peace itself. Here, unfortunately, I think, one has to climb over a mountain of criticism about both the peace and what Margaret herself in another book has called the peacemakers. The list of what went wrong or what might have been done better in Paris seems almost endless. From the final treaty's dubious economic provisions, John Maynard Keynes started the ball rolling on this one in 1919 and 1920. His punitive attitude towards Germany, Keynes again, and right through to its failure to include Soviet Russia in the final settlement. The demolition job, if I can call it that, has also extended to President Woodrow Wilson. In fact, many, if not all, accounts, in those accounts, Wilson emerges as being either too liberal, not liberal enough, preachy, naive, or just plainly odd. <laughs> Wilson's vision for a new world order, as he termed it, has suffered in equal measure. And perhaps, no and perhaps no particular part of that edifice has been subject to more criticism or attack than what he saw as the cornerstone of the peace, namely the League of Nations. Indeed, if the war was a catastrophe, one that led in time to most other catastrophes in the 20th century, then its offspring in the form of the League of Nations was, according to many writers, a piece of architectural grandstanding, quite literally a nonsense on stilts that was bound to fail, not simply because Wilson could not sell it to the American people, or more precisely, because he couldn't sell it to the Senate, but because it was not grounded, as critics have argued, in the real world of real states pursuing power politics. In short, it was utopian. Now I mention all this, not because I think that Wilson or the League are above criticism. They are not. 
but rather because the historical figure of Woodrow Wilson and the institution of the League of Nations and the dream of a new world order are intimately bound up with the history of my own academic discipline of international relations, or as we like to call it short, IR. <laughs> to which you might say, really? So what? Anyway, what is international relations? Indeed, I suspect that some of you out there might be thinking that there are many other things we should be talking about tonight other than the birth of an academic discipline. After all, where does it stand on the ladder of historical significance when set alongside the collapse of three European empires, a civil war in Russia, political upheaval in Germany, economic chaos in Central Europe, and death and mayhem in the Balkans. Well, not very high, I suppose. Still, as a story, it is not without interest. And as a story, it also points us towards something rather more constructive and hopeful coming out of the war. Indeed, it is in its own small way a story of hope after so much despair. I might also add that it is connected to my own intellectual journey through life. The story of IR, interestingly, begins in Wales with a well-known and reasonably wealthy Welsh family from Landinum in mid-Wales, but ultimately grows directly out of the experience of the trenches. For having himself served on the Western Front, where he commanded a volunteer battalion of his own raising, David Davis of Landinum emerged from the war appalled by the waste and the carnage he had witnessed. He thereupon resolved to do all in his power to ensure that such a disaster could never happen again. And what better way of doing this, he, he reasoned, than endowing a chair of international politics. As he rather movingly put it in a letter of the time, we need such a chair, not only so that old problems can be confronted in a new spirit, but also as a way of commemorating those who had laid down their lives in the morning of their days and whose memory our little nation will wish to cherish for all time. Having decided in 1919 that such a chair was required, Davis and his two formidable sisters, Gwendolyn and Margaret, took a number of other decisions of some import. One was to locate the chair in Aberystwyth, then a constituent part of the Federal University of Wales, rather than Strasbourg or Geneva. Aberystwyth in Wales was much closer to their hearts than Strasbourg in France or Geneva in Switzerland. In any way, all three reasoned, with little evidence to support their view, I should add, that small nations like Wales were more naturally peace-loving than anything on offer on the continent. <laughs> Finally, they had to decide upon a name for the chair. That was easy. It was to be called the Woodrow Wilson chair. And the holder of the chair, Davis insisted, because he had paid the money, 
had a clear moral as well as strategic purpose, namely to promote the ideas of Woodrow Wilson while studying, encouraging and supporting the work of the League of Nations. That, in a nutshell, was academic IR in its early years. Peace studies by any other name. And though other wealthy patrons endowed other chairs, one here at the LSE in 1924 and in Oxford and in other parts of the world, their role was broadly the same as that in Aberystwyth, to work on behalf of peace, and the only way many thought this could be done was by endorsing the League. There seemed to be no alternative. It is, of course, easy to be sceptical, perhaps even mildly amused, about this Welsh venture in the same way that most people later became sceptical and mildly amused, at best, by the League itself. But we should judge neither the chair in Aberystwyth nor the League by what it later failed to do or was unable to achieve in the 1930s when the world was engulfed once more. Rather, we should think about why both were created in the first place. And the answer is obvious. Because the old problems had, in Davis's words, to be confronted in a new way. And they had to be confronted because the established way of doing things, based on realist principles such as the balance of power, such as alliances, and such as the pursuit of one's own national interest, at the expense of everything else, had delivered us 1914 and all that followed. As Wilson himself justly observed before arriving in Paris, the old system of powers and balances of powers have failed. Not to move on to the much maligned Wilson, where his ideas on collective security and a just peace quite as utopian as later critics were to suggest. And oddly enough, ironically enough, the most vitriolic critic of Wilson and the League was to be the British historian Edward Hallett Carr, E.H. Carr, who in 1936 had been appointed to, you may have guessed it by now, the Woodrow Wilson chair in Aberystwyth. <laughs> Carr was not exactly interested in Wales. He never learnt Welsh, and as far as the record shows, he hardly ever lived in Aberystwyth. Nor, as it turned out, did he much like the figure of Woodrow Wilson or his creation in the shape of the League. So why take the chair, you might reasonably ask. The answer was obvious. Because it afforded him, Carl, the time and salary to write his famous study, The Twenty Years' Crisis, which was published in 1939, three years after he took the chair, and a few months, or weeks even, before the outbreak of the Second World War. The details in the book need not detain us here, only to say that the book itself has become a classic in IR. But it was a polemic of the highest order aimed at the peace of 1919 and the peacemakers who were there in Paris. Indeed, it would be no exaggeration to say that Carr probably did more than any other writer in the English-speaking world to spin a story about Versailles, about Wilson and the League, that has carried weight to this day, and not just amongst scholars in the IR profession. 
Carr's attack was a brilliant demolition job without doubt, but it was wildly and I suspect deliberately one-sided. After all, Wilson, a great admirer of 19th century liberal thought, but with a decidedly American accent, did inspire hope when hope was in such sort of supply after the war. Indeed, apart from Bolshevism, he was the only source of hope in Europe immediately after World War I. He also caused the generation to think creatively about world order in new ways. I would also argue that his views on the relationship between democracy and peace were innovative too. Finally, he grasped something that Carr never did, for Carr always believed in the big battalions in history that nations would in the end demand the right to rule themselves. Nor to continue the story and to conclude, were those attacked by Carr in his book, that is to say anybody who had a good word to say about the League, quite the naive utopians, or naive utopian saps, they were portrayed as being in the 20 years crisis. Admittedly, writers like Arnold Toynbee or Leonard Wolfe could hardly stop Italy walking into Abyssinia or Hitler re-entering the Rhineland. But they were not ignorant about power and the centrality of power in world affairs, nor, by the way, was Wilson. Indeed, as more recent research on interwar liberals has shown, many of their number, many of these liberals, including such men as Alfred Zimmern, the first holder of the Wilson chair, and Charles Webster the second Wilson chair and subsequent Stevenson chair here at the LSE, were more than alert to the dangers posed by Japanese and German expansion in the 1930s. In fact, our benefactor, David Davis, even suggested bombing Tokyo with an international air force to punish Japanese aggression in Manchuria in 1931. It didn't come off. Other idealists, so-called, were also alert to the danger posed by totalitarian aggression and urged a steady rearmament after 1938 as the only answer to Hitler. Meanwhile, the realists in the Foreign Office, supported by Carr, urged appeasement with fairly disastrous consequences. Finally, to conclude... Even if the League failed, finally dissolved in the early 1940s, the global need remained for international organisations. These may not have transcended the nation-state, and they could hardly stop the Cold War that unfolded after 1947, but they did in the end add to the sum of international security after World War II. Indeed, one of the more remarkable features of the world system after 1945 was not just the rise of the United States as the hegemonic power, but the active part played by the United States in helping establishing not just one international organization, but several, from a revamped League of Nations, now called the United Nations, plus a host of others like the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and ultimately in 1949, NATO. Wilson may have failed 20 years earlier, in establishing an architecture for peace. Largely, I would suggest, because the conditions were simply not there in 1919. The time was not ripe. A generation later, the time had arrived, and one suspects that Wilson would not have disapproved of what his country was now putting together. Perhaps his day had finally come, but so too, perhaps, had Aberystwyth's and David Davis's. Thank you very much indeed. (laughs)
Thank you very much, Mick. Um, Margaret mentioned in her introduction the lack of an agreement or consensus among historians in the thousands of books that have been written about the origins of the First World War on the basic question as to why it happened. And if we can't agree on why it happened, then we're in danger of something like it perhaps happening again. Now, Mick has come back to that question in a different way by drawing the distinction between realist and idealist or internationalist approaches to the origins of the war and the problem of war prevention and suggesting that perhaps what failed miserably in the 1920s and 30s was more successful after 1945, though perhaps there are lessons there that more recently we're in danger of losing and forgetting once again. Anyway, these are both, if you like, international approaches to the problems raised by the outbreak of war. But however you work your way around this debate, sooner or later you come in the end to the sort of heart of darkness of this problem, which I think is something to do with nationalism. And this leads to our third speaker, um, John Hutchinson, who's a leader in the Department of Government here, uh, who's an expert on nationalism. He's written both both theoretically and historically about that problem, particularly, I think, with reference to Ireland. So we've had a Welsh dimension, and now we... You don't have a Scottish connection, do you, Margaret? Distant. (laughs) Distant, distant, okay. Um, So, anyway, John, the, the field is yours. Okay, well, thanks very much. Uh, I hope to pick up some of the themes um, of the previous speakers to reflect on the consequences of the First World War uh, both for nationalism and nation states. Um, It's very difficult to think uh, about the First World War uh, without reference to its successor, which uh, many argue arose directly out of uh, the, 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 the problems created by the First World War. And taking these two, albeit very different, wars together, um, I'm going to argue they they have had profound consequences, both for nationalism and also for the world of nation-states that we inhabit today. Now, from one perspective, uh, that of Benedict Anderson, uh, the two world wars represent the apogee of, 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 of nationalism. Not since the Crusades, he argues, have so many millions of people uh, died willingly for a creed, in this case, nationalism. And indeed, uh, in many countries, including Britain, uh, the canonic forms of war commemoration were established in the aftermath of the First World War. Anderson citing uh, the tomb to the unknown soldier as representative of the new democratic nation-state. Moreover, these wars could be seen as the midwives of a major shift in in world politics, from a world of empires uh, to that of nation-states. The First World War resulted, as Mick uh, pointed out, in the collapse of three great European empires. Uh, And uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War, uh, the European uh, empires dissolved in Africa and Asia. Yet, from another perspective, uh, the wars produced in the original heartland of of nationalism, Europe, a profound revulsion against uh, its successes. Nationalist hatreds were viewed as as generating two civil wars in Europe that almost destroyed the continent. And indeed, it's not, some have seen it as not fanciful to to, to describe these two world wars 
uh, together as a second Thirty Years' War. Now, using the analogy of, this, uh, of, of the Thirty Years' War, they're referring to the great religious wars uh, of the 17th century that almost destroyed Central Europe. The, and one of the outcomes was recoiling against the overpowering role of religion in, in politics, the attempts of states as were to subordinate religion to, uh, to, to, to state interests uh, reflected in the Westphalian uh, system, and uh, amongst intellectuals in projects that were realised in, uh, in the Enlightenment to find secular, non-religious uh, models of social and political order. And arguably, the two world wars uh, produced a further intellectual uh, 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 revolution, an equivalent rejection of nationalism in Europe, now identified with violence and real politique, uh, and in turn, uh, the shift towards uh, a transnational, uh, more cosmopolitan uh, European uh, uh, project. Uh, to establish political communities uh, founded on, uh, on, on, on point different or democratic values. And indeed, some, some, some scholars have argued that Europe, in the process, has pioneered a new form, uh, uh, a new means of overcoming old enemies. It's introduced a politics of restitution and uh, reconciliation which is now exporting to a violent world, uh, exemplified in, in the Willy Brandt's uh, kneeling uh, uh, at a monument to, to, the, to the dead of the Warsaw Ghetto, sort of taking on, us, on, 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 on his head the sins, as it were, the German nation. And, and so one scholar has argued that we, so we see an increasing shift uh, in, in world affairs to this politics of restitution of the policy so Elazar uh, Barzan talks about the guilt of nations. Uh, now, this reference to transnational institutions such as the European Union alerts us to, the, to a new global context in which nation states operate. Because the two world wars were great, were great global wars of, 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 of rival empires. And they appear to reveal not only the interconnectedness, uh, the new interconnectedness of the world, but also the illusory sovereignty of nation states, particularly that of, of small nation states. And so in the aftermath of the First World War, as, as Mick has uh, observed, we see the rise of the League of Nations, attempts to regulate uh, nation states, and uh, in the, uh, towards the end of the Second World War, the establishment of the United Nations. Um, the United Nations set, set out uh, to restrict the rights of nation states to go to war except under very uh, specific circumstances so that interventions in other political uh, jurisdictions had to be justified by universal mandates, for example, to prevent crimes against humanity. And the, the, the Holocaust becomes raised from uh, uh, transformed from being simply being seen as an atrocity against uh, against the Jews to uh, a universal symbol of of, uh, of the of the crimes against minorities worldwide. Now, as these cosmopolitan visions take hold, so amongst many intellectuals in the West, uh, the, the nation state is seen increasingly obsolete. 
uh, and its grand narratives uh, and progress stories that uh, obscured all kinds of forms of coercion of minorities now have been, uh, again, uh, are, are being constructed, uh, deconstructed. Um, and the declining grip of, of nationalist narratives, again, has been argued, is seen in the proliferation of identity politics within the nation. So that uh, uh, all kinds of marginalized, marginalized groups have emerged uh, critiquing, as were, the, the, the dominant, dominant values of, of the major national group, ethnic minorities, the patriarchal values implied in old, old, old forms of, 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 of nationhood and so forth. And indeed, uh, some have argued, all this is resulting in new forms of war memorialization, which I can talk about later. Now, linked to all of this, uh, arguably, too, there's been a major shift in the way that national identities are, 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 and the national story is being represented. Uh, uh, since, since 1914. In the 19th century, uh, the, the, the myths of nationalism were presented very much in romantic terms. Uh, one of the major uh, myths explored by George Moss was the, the, the myth of the fallen soldier, in, in which, uh, in which uh, soldiers presented in heroic terms. Um, and uh, again, the, the significance of their death provided the, uh, the basis of social solidarity of the nation. In other words, survivors were, were, were bound uh, to revere the memory of the fallen uh, uh, by promising to sustain the values for which they uh, fought. So war in these terms was seen as socially regenerating. Um, and indeed, heroic myths of auto-emancipation justified nations' claims to existence. But arguably, the, the total wars of the 20th century uh, have produced a major shift and uh, a, a demolition of, the, of these romantic myths. The First World War, again, widely perceived as one of mess, uh, mass mechanized death, in which there's very little room for individual heroism. Uh, Chris Coker, for example, describes uh, the uh, mon monuments to the unknown soldier as implying in their very anonymity as were the death of the individual and the, the sense uh, that the soldiers themselves had become uh, anonymous victims. And the Second World War, again, many have argued, continued this deconstruction of the myth because, uh, uh, again, the, of the blurring uh, between uh, civilian, and, 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 uh, civilian and, and military deaths. In other words, the Second World War, through the mass bombing of cities, uh, the introduction of nuclear weapons towards the end of the war, and, of course, the, uh, uh, the, the Holocaust were seen as major threats to the very existence of peoples. So war now seemed to be a threat to the survival of peoples, and since war was so much bound up with conceptions of national identity, for many this, this, this resulted in a, a major threat, as it were, to the prestige and legitimacy of nations. So war increasingly has been seen through the prism of trauma and victimhood rather than heroism. Uh, conveyed in Jay Winters, uh, the title of Jay Winters' books, Sites of Mourning, Sites of Memory, Sites of Mourning, and indeed have 
uh, in the contemporary uh, 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 monuments to the dead, such as the Vietnam Wall, a wall. And indeed, you could argue that uh, the very nature of the new nation states that come to inhabit uh, uh, the 20th century world reinforced this notion of victimhood. So many of these new nation states uh, emerged from the ruins of empire and defined their identity in terms of martyrdom and long centuries of occupation, which they had successfully overthrown. So the Irish, the Poles, uh, saw themselves as crucified nations, um, simply the Serbs. And of course, many of these new nation states, after gaining their independence uh, after the First World War, were rapidly reoccupied uh, uh, after the, the result of the Nazi-Soviet Pact, the, uh, the, the triumph of Nazi Germany, and then uh, uh, again brought under occupation uh, from the, the Soviet Union. Now. After suggesting this seems to undermine a, a, a lot of the prestige and legitimacy of nations, let me qualify this. Wars still do have a heroic cast amongst those who perceive themselves as victors uh, in, in the conflict. So the rising powers of the United States, the Soviet Union and the successor state of Russia, and indeed Britain, um, Saw, uh, just a, saw the victory uh, in the Second World War as a victory against evil um, and justified their claims to have a moral mission uh, uh, to, uh, to, to world leadership in the contemporary world. The second uh, qualification is that the notion of war as traumatic uh, and uh, the, the sense of people's being victimised is double-edged. On the one hand, it can seem uh, the notion of being traumatised with victims suggests uh, passivity uh, and uh, uh, passivity and immobility. But trauma and victimhood could be deliberately cultivated as a way of mobilising nationalists, mobilising the populations to regain territory and status. And again, one sees this very much in contemporary China, uh, where China, uh, the Chinese elite deliberately cultivate Chinese, modern Chinese history as a century of humiliation uh, to mobilize the people to regain uh, lo- lo- lost territories. And indeed, unlike Europe, where the experiences and memories of war have led to, again, a politics of reconciliation, in Asia, uh, these memories have resulted uh, in bitter international relations between Japan and uh, the, the, uh, the surrounding powers. A third qualification, too, is that although we do see the rise of would-be global institutions such as the United Nations, these are in reality international institutions, insofar as they can only operate through the cooperation of the great nation-states. Moreover, the universalist mandates uh, used to justify military intervention in, in trouble spots in, in the world again, are only sustainable uh, through coalitions of nation-states. And indeed, if politicians uh, in the long run can persuade their populations that such intervention is justified by nationalist objectives. So while nationalism and nation-states have been profoundly transformed by the experience of of, of these global conflicts, they're still key motivators and vehicles of collective action in the contemporary world. 
There's a final question uh, about why still remember the First World War, uh, uh, given that uh, the, the participants ha- ha- have passed away. Um, I think there are three, three reasons why, uh, why the, the mem- memories of the First World War are still so important. One is, in, in countries like Britain, the canonical forms of remembrance uh, were established uh, after the First World War. And these uh, operate as the frame through which the dead of all subsequent wars are commemorated. So as were, the, 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 as were replenished in a rather grisly way uh, by, by the dead of, 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 of later wars. I think the First World War is also resonant, because as Margaret uh, uh, pointed out, uh, of the profound consequences associated with it. Uh, the rise of mass democracy uh, at the end of the uh, fir- uh, First World War in so many European states, the, uh, fe- uh, the female emancipation and suffrage, the rise of totalitarian social and political models that emerged within the war, uh, cultural modernism, the sense again of an, aristocrat, uh, 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 an aristocratic age that had departed, the sense of a liberal optimistic uh, era that had uh, disappeared. And such consequences uh, again have been partly explored in many of the, uh, uh, in a multitude of major films, novels, and, pl- and plays. Uh, and these, in turn, have embedded uh, uh, the memories and significance of the war in popular culture. Uh, one of the more recent ones, of course, War Horse, again, which continues to attract uh, a, major, uh, a major audience. A third reason, I think, why the First World War is uh, remembered is it because uh, it seems to demonstrate the survival capacities of, 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 of national societies. The First World War was a climatic and an existential crisis uh, for, for countries like Britain uh, that, uh, that was collectively uh, faced and collectively overcome. And as, as such, it uh, provides, uh, it can be invoked to provide hope and lessons for future crises. Thank you very much. Well, um, thank you very much indeed, John, and to um, all of our three speakers. Um, In a moment, I want to open it up to discussion. I just want to draw out some of the threads, I think, that have been coming through from the contributions that we've had tonight. Um, If you remember, I started at the beginning with David Cameron's reasons as to why we should be commemorating. Um, and I stress, of course, that the, word, the operative verb here is commemorating, not celebrating, as government spokesmen and women have mostly been careful to emphasize. But one of the things that could be added to that, and I think commonly is in the media, is that we need to go back to the First World War in order to understand it, and perhaps even to draw lessons in order to prevent such a catastrophe or minimise the chances of such a catastrophe happening again, probably happening in a different way in our own age, but perhaps equally equally bad or worse. I think one of the things that's come out as a sort of theme through the contributions tonight is the difficulty, actually, of drawing such lessons. That's part of the problem 
That's why it continues to haunt us. Yeah? Um, I remember the comment of the historian Trevor Wilson quoting, I think, Charles Carrington in the 1930s, that a man might rail against the war, but always amongst its myriad faces he would see one that was his own. Yeah? However much you might be repelled by the war, there are so, and it's so difficult to interpret, it also has a kind of peculiar fascination, almost attraction. Very difficult to come to terms with that. Now, Margaret was saying at the beginning that historians, in their analysis of the origins and the outbreak of the war, have still failed to arrive at consensus. In fact, we've seen in the plethora of books that have emerged this year how far we still are from consensus, and I don't think Richard Evans actually accurately summed up where that debate has got to. Um, that's history. If we're looking at international relations approaches, Mick brought out the fundamental difference between realist approaches and idealistic or internationalist organizational approaches that remained, that was a feature of the debate in the international relations discipline from its beginnings and continues to be relevant. What lessons do you draw from the outbreak of 1914 war? Often cited is the example of President Kennedy in the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. But if you actually, if you look in detail at what the lessons Kennedy drew were, his lessons were partly that the World War of 1914 would be caused by misunderstanding, but he also looked at 1939 and the dangers of war being caused by appeasement. So he actually looked for a kind of combination of toughness and conciliation dealing with Khrushchev in 1962. Now, the third approach we've had from John Hutchinson is talking about nationalism. This is a kind of political-cultural approach. And John was bringing out the differences of how you interpret the significance of nationalism in the causes of war and how, I think this is a point made particularly by a German writer, actually, who's looked at the impact of defeat and how defeat and victimhood can actually galvanize nationalism and national consciousness, as we see in Germany in the 1920s and 1930s, in a way that victory can't. Uh, I think if we just need to look at the news in the recent weeks and look at East Asia or the Ukraine, we see the continuing importance of nationalism as a force in many parts of the world, even if to some extent it's been anaesthetized in Western Europe since 1945. So a lot of conflicting lessons here, continuing scope for debate, but the lessons that we draw from these less, from these episodes and this interpretation remain relevant, remain vital. These are questions that remain important for hopefully giving us some kind of light, aids to steering through the dangers that continue to beset us in our own time. Now, having said all of that, we're kind of op- opening more questions perhaps than we've put closed, but let- let's open it up for discussion. And there's a question here. We have, we have until, we have 20 minutes for discussion, by the way. So, yeah. Thank you, Chair. And thanks to the speakers. They're really interesting uh, talks. Um, at the beginning, um, David, you, you briefly mentioned, and it's been talked, it's been briefly mentioned in, 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 in the three speakers as well, the uh, imperial angle. Mm-hmm. Um, but we haven't really fleshed it out much. And I was just wondering, particularly uh, if, if Margaret could maybe say a few words about the degree to which um, contestations between the European powers and some of their colonial interests 
had an impact on the beginning of the war. I'm conscious that we, when we talk about a war that ended the peace, um, that may have been a relatively peaceful century uh, in European terms, but that certainly wasn't the case in other parts of the world where the colonial experience was, was anything anything but that, and I'm just, I'm just interested in the degree to which particularly um, some of the uh, tensions that have been building up within, within Africa and the uh, Indian subcontinent um, played a role in, in those ex- uh, the, 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 the tensions being exacerbated within uh, a European theatre. So c- did everybody get the question? Can everybody here at the back? Yeah, so the, the question was about imperialism and extra-European rivalries and their role in causing the, the outbreak of war. Yeah. Margaret? Um, I think it's mixed, and, and I'm still... I, I think you can argue it either way. Um, I think, on the whole, the big imperial rivalries were over by 1914. Um, you know, the two big imperial rivalries, rivalries which had nearly brought war in Europe, I mean, because of the, the rivalries around the world were feeding back into tensions in Europe, were between Britain and France and between Britain and Russia. I mean, France and Britain very nearly came to war over, over Fashoda in 1898, and I think there was very real danger of war between Britain and, and Russia as well, particularly um, as the British saw a menace developing as, as Russia pushed eastwards and southwards, the British saw a menace, um, a menace to um, India, and of course they were also very concerned about the eastern end of the Mediterranean. Both those had been settled, but that didn't mean uh, that imperialism still wasn't a factor. And it was partly, I think, the belief structure of the time. I mean, there was a belief which we no longer share, that you couldn't be a great power without empire. Um, And, you know, there are fashions in international relations and thinking just as much as in anything else. Um, And there were still a couple of spots in the world where rivalries were acute, um, Africa had been more or less settled, at least to the satisf- not to the satisfaction of the Africans themselves, but to the satisfaction of, of the imperial powers. China was still a potential for trouble, although by 1914 there was more or less an agreement um, that they would stand off. They would have informal empires but, but not move into China. And I think they feared the consequences they did try to. And, of course, the other area was much closer to home. It was the Ottoman Empire, which most people expected would, was about to fall to pieces. And, and that was a source of conflict. I don't myself, but this again is one of the many things you can disagree about in the origins of the First World War. I don't think it was imperial rivalries. I mean, Lenin always argued that imperialism was the highest stage of capitalism, which fueled the final conflict. I think the um, causes of the war were much closer to home in Europe, but certainly imperialism didn't help, I think. It, it was tied up with nationalism and people measured themselves. You know, if you were a British schoolchild, you saw the globe covered pink with pink. Um, or if you were German, you'd look to the globe and thought there isn't enough. Um, I think Germany's colour was, was was it yellow or blue usually? I can't uh, remember. But yellow, the, brown, I think. Brown. There wasn't yeah. enough brown mm-hmm. on the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think, but I, I think you, you have to really look in Europe for the sources of the war. But it's connected to empire. I mean, that, yeah. I mean, it, it, if, even if you don't accept Lenin, yeah. you can accept that empire, at least at two levels. It, it seems to me it's fundamental to understanding this, even if you don't think about colonialism and, and the Leninist interpretation. I mean, one is uh, part of the causes of the First World War bound up with disintegrating empires within Europe itself, both the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian. So one can't almost envisage the dynamics leading to the war of Germany's support other than with those two empires, which are just in the process of disintegration. And I suppose we haven't mentioned the German question because it's now not polite to do so, otherwise not. Um, only Max Hastings does it any longer, so I'm not going to reproduce Max Hastings here tonight. But um, 
I'd be interested to know your views on this and David's. It does seem to me Germany is a late industrialising power, seeing the world as it had then by then been divided, uh, wondered whether its position in the world would, could never, would ever be realised without some kind of expansion. Um, it's sort of British position in the world, it's sort of French position in the world, its own position imperially was very weak. It does seem, I mean, without, you don't have to buy into the whole of the Fritz Fischer thesis, it seems to me, to accept that in a sense some German, some German place in the sun was part of parcel of what caused the First World War. Yeah, John, do you want to come in on this? I think it was just, uh, it's just a point that, um, that in the process of this imperial conflict, the empires themselves are increasingly stirring up the national minorities against their mm-hmm. enemy empire, and that, that in itself is creating destabilization. Security. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, that's a very good point. Yeah, I think you need to make a, just quickly, I think you need to make a distinction between extra-European and imperialism. Yeah. Yes. Yeah? Yeah. And the whole part of Lenin's argument which is often underestimated, actually, is that imperialism applied within Europe as well as outside. Mm -hmm. And if you take that broader definition, then Mm -hmm. it's not unreasonable to see the First World War as in some ways an imperialist conflict, though Lenin's definition of what imperialism was was crude, too too, too simple. But it is true that if you look in the immediate sort of diplomacy of 1913-14, Extra-European rivalries had diminished in importance. Yeah? The British and the yeah. Germans, for example, were able to reach agreements about spheres of influence in Africa and in the Middle East, yeah. for example. Um, but if in a broader sense, the, the sort of un- influence on European leaders of the view that it's kind of rise or decline, mm. yeah. that's really important in shaping <laughs> mentalities both in Germany and in Russia. Mm. Mm. And it's, it means that they, they can't, you cannot expect the Germans simply to sit tight and move to a situation where by 1917 it will not be credible for them to be able to win and fight and, fight and win a European yeah. war. Absolutely. Yeah. global yeah. So there's a, lots of questions. I think I'm going to collect a bunch of three questions and then carry on. So, so this gentleman, these, I'll take these, two, three, these three questions first. Yeah? Hopefully they'll be on similar topics and then, then take another Hopefully bunch. Sure. Uh, My question is to Margaret Macmillan. Um, In the current edition of History Today, you support Britain's entering the war as it would have been disastrous if Germany gobbled up Belgium and uh, dominated Europe. But surely the key question is, can anyone expect Germany Germany to wait until the Russian and French armies were on their border? Uh, It was Russian army... Uh, mobilised first, it was the French army that mobilised second, and the German army that mobilised last. And also the British Navy was mobilised because uh, and obviously the Germans scared, were scared of a um, blockade. So, so finally, on page 587... Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, dear, this is a You ignore the fact that the three-quarters of Gray's speech on August the 3rd, which took England, England into the war, never mentioned Belgium. Instead, it was a hypothetical scenario that if, uh, that if the German navy left its space, no reason to believe it would, and sailed to the English Channel, England should, the English Navy should fight because France would feel threatened. Okay, while you're thinking about that, Margaret, I'm going yes. to collect, <laughs> collect, collect two more. Page 588. The questions aren't related, I'm afraid. Never mind, let's have it. Um, I, was, I went through the British education system, including at this university, 
This talk tonight, and maybe a bit of Blackadder, is about the extent of my knowledge and thinking <laughs> on this, on, on World War I. And yet it feels that there's increasing pressure to remember, to commemorate, to wear a poppy, to pay your respects, to honour soldiers, particularly this year. And so I'm just wondering why you think there is this kind of mismatch between the expectation of commemoration and what the people, what people's actual understanding is of World War One. So I think there's a huge gap there. Yeah, Ex- excellent question. Yeah. Um, okay, I'll take these two together and then I'll move to another part of the of the room. Yeah. You first, sir, and then yeah. Yeah. Um, Forty years ago, the New Statesman used to run an co- intellectual competition at the back of the magazine. Uh, and one week, the competition uh, described a true head- headline which had appeared in the Times, which said, Small earthquake in Chile, not many dead. And competitors were invited to uh, offer a uh, similar sensational headline. Uh, which would win the prize, which was a book token, I think. And the winning prize, which always stuck in my mind, was the following. Archduke Franz Ferdinand Alive, World War I fought by mistake. Now, (laughs) the point of my question is the counterfactual. What would have happened if Britain had not entered the war in 1914? It's really a question to Margaret Macmillan, because she was saying, I think quite rightly, people didn't realise what they were getting into when they declared war in August 1914. And there was indeed a great deal of ambivalence, I think, in the Liberal Party. And even people like Lloyd George were unsure whether declaring war was the right thing to do. And there was, in fact, an organisation set up called the Union for Democratic Control which was eventually managed by E.D. Morell, who was a journalist who had first exposed King Leopold's Congo and spent the war running this organisation. And it was led by various opposition MPs, principally Ramsay MacDonald, later the first Labour Prime Minister. But the Union for Democratic Control was very much a minority organisation and didn't really command very big support in the Liberal Party, the majority of whom backed Edward Gray. Okay, thank I think you've made your question clear. Yeah, thank you very much. And, and, one, and one more. Yeah. We've, got two, we've got two on the outbreak of war and one on commemoration. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's not very clear to me why Italy switched sides. And it's just a question goes out to anyone on the panel if they have something to say about that. Because it was my understanding, possibly, that there was a secret pact between... Yeah. France and Britain and Italy, and then Woodrow Wilson did not honour it. Okay. So, and, anyway. Right. Yeah. Shall I, I deal quickly with the last question, which was about Italy? Then, Margaret, yes. you can take the other one. We can, uh, on the, we can take the two on the outbreak, okay. on Germany, whether, whether Germany was, should, you know, the, the, the question was about, first yeah. was about Germany, the second one was about should Britain have stayed out. Then we can sort of open it more broadly as to why we should commemorate this and why it isn't more taught in the schools. Just Italy very briefly. Yeah, in 1914, Italy was allied with Germany and Austria-Hungary and had been since 1882. It was not obliged to go to war on their side in the circumstances of 1914 because they took the initiative. It was, it was, it was a defensive alliance. So Italy stayed neutral. 
neutral for a number of reasons, that being one. 1915, it came into the war on the Allied side, a secret treaty was signed, and essentially this was the result of a bargaining process in which the Italians were negotiating with both sides, but they thought, one, that the, the Allied side was more likely to win, and two, that the Allied side could offer them more territory. Some of it inhabited by Italians, some of it not. But that's the secret treaty of London, which is what America was not bound by, and which Wilson tried unsuccessfully to challenge in 1919. Now, I can, I can recommend some reading on it afterwards, if you want. Sheer opportunism, in other words. Margaret. Well, I wish my answers could be as concise and as clear. I'm not sure they can. Um, I think we can get you can you, the mobilization issues are fascinating, mm. but they give you a very small taste of why it is impossible to come to any conclusions about how the first world war started, um, because mobilizing was was in most cases seen as a threat. Um, it was a way of putting pressure on the other side. Um, did it necessarily lead to war? No, except in the case of the German mobilization plans, which had almost no break between actually mobilizing and going over the borders and, and, and attacking. Um, but, you know, you could argue this, and people have argued it literally, um, you know, all night. Um, Germany, I mean, one of the striking things about the First World War is that every government of the major powers it entered was very concerned about its own public opinion, worried that its publics wouldn't support it, and they all managed successfully to persuade their publics, with some help from the publics themselves, that they were the innocent party, they were being attacked. And so the Germans felt themselves to be encircled, the Russians felt themselves to be under threat from the Teutonic powers... France was attacked and had every reason to feel that threatened. Belgium certainly was attacked, and the British felt um, that they were being menaced. Now, whether or not Germany um, was a sufficient menace to Britain to make it want to enter the war is, again, a question that we could argue forever. But I think what the British calculated in 1914 was that it would not be good for Britain and for British interests if Germany dominated the continent. If the German plan had worked, and it perhaps came closer to working than we like to think now, that would have meant that Belgium, possibly the Netherlands, which was a neutral country, but that wouldn't have mattered much, and the north coast of France would have been under German control. Germany would have been the hegemonic power in Europe. It, at the end of August, the German armies inflicted a major defeat on Russian armies. If France had fallen, again, we don't know. This is all speculation. But if France had fallen, Russia might well have decided it wasn't worth fighting on. Why should they take on Germany and Austria-Hungary alone? And so you would have had a Europe-dominated by a triumphant Germany, in my own view, is that this would have been impossible for Britain to live with or very, very difficult. And the Germany that would have emerged out of victory um, after 1914 would have probably been one, again, these are all things we can never prove, but I would say would probably have been one in which the reactionary elements would have been strengthened. There were many of those around the Kaiser um, and in the central government of Germany who talked of using war as a way of bringing German society together, cracking down on the socialists whom they were very alarmed by, who were growing in power, dissolving the unions, dissolving the Reichstag. So we don't know. But I think Britain at the time thought it was in Britain's national interests. And Belgium, yes, maybe Belgium was was an excuse. Um, Maybe it wasn't. Um, But I think the British really felt that they had um, not an obligation so much to France, but they had an obligation to Britain to fight in 1914. Russia, so, was first France second, so wasn't it? Uh, well, look, yes, but what does being first mean? I mean, Russia, when you're mobilizing, you have to go further. You couldn't reverse it. 
You could, you could, you could reverse it. You could, what you could do, what the French did, and hold your troops twenty kilometers back from the boundaries. Listen, we we can talk about this after. But if you get into mobilization issues, honestly, we'd be here all night. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy for us to continue this afterwards. But yeah. I think these are quite quite technical yeah. points, and I want to make sure as many issues as much yeah. as possible get addressed. Do you want to say any more about 1914? Well, just, I mean, just yeah. very, very quickly, yeah. support. I mean, mm. it, it, it seemed to be that Britain's position about going to war had to do with alliances, credibility, mm. the relationship with France, the relationship with Russia, etc. But in the, in the ultimate sense, it seems to me that Britain's historic position in relation to Europe has been fairly constant, mm. Mm. Uh, as in 1914, as, as in the period of the French Revolutionary Wars. I mean... It, it, it was to maintain what they regarded as a balance of power, which there was no single hegemon, no single power dominating the continent of Europe. That had been the position towards France, that became the position towards Germany in both wars. And you could even say, if you want to kind of extend that argument forward towards, towards the Cold War itself, which was a kind of form of a, of a balance of power. Now, now, they're all very different kind of conflicts, but it does seem to me that there isn't a great mystery in, in that sense if you take that kind of broader structural historical explanation on board yeah, yeah about commemoration mm. it's, there are so many complex reasons why uh, people <coughs> commemorate um, there, it could be simply because it's a dramatic story in which the country was a world significance and a world significant event um, uh, second is uh, politicians uh, I mean, commemoration is the uh, as someone said it's the appropriation of the dead for the purposes of the living um, uh, and the politicians frequently then are, are looking to draw lessons from that frequently to, to justify their own actions in the present but it's more than that it's also the notion I mean, commemoration is often driven by a sense of uh, the attempt to find meaning out of, uh, out of mass death, particularly in an increasingly secular, secular age. Mm. Uh, so that, that part of this, uh, the power of these uh, ceremonies is the idea of a, a population coming together, united around this notion of, uh, notion of sacrifice. I think they draw, uh, uh, further, I think it draws uh, on... What is happening today, for example, in Afghanistan and uh, uh, Iraq and others? Uh, well, it's the it's the sense that not necessarily it is a validation any kind of, of nationalism, uh, because these wars, by and large, are not given uh, a kind of overall justification by politicians of a, of a national purpose. By and large, it's a sense of respect for people who die um, in a war that uh, they're being led into by politicians. So it's a, it's a notion that there are, even in this materialistic age, there are people who do altruistic things, nurses on the one hand, soldiers on the other, and there's a kind of sympathy for their predicament. Um, so I think there are many complex reasons why my commemoration occurs. Yeah, can I just add to that? I think you need to ask, why does the 100 years matter? Mm. No? In one sense, looking at it dispassionately, it doesn't. This is a purely arbitrary, arbitrary thing that we've constructed for ourselves because of the way we as human beings organise time and space. Yeah? It t- doesn't have any significance. So, In fact, since at least the 18th century, people have been commemorating centenaries. In 1788, people here were commemorating the centenary of 1688, the so-called Glorious Revolution. So it goes back at least that far. 
Now, having said that, one level, what's happening is artificial. At another level, it's not. Because since the 1990s, one can see a change in popular attitudes to the First World War. Remember how we've we've begun commemorating and honouring again 11 a.m. on the 11th of November, yeah? That was a huge event, huge thing in the interwar years, the two-minute silence. It stopped after 1945. It revived in the 1990s because of a campaign led by the Daily Mail and Daily Express, I think, but has been given more consistency and power and cogency because of British troops once again dying in large numbers in Iraq and in Afghanistan. So there's a kind of popular move here. But there's also a governmental concern. I think that the listeners should not be forgotten because the last veterans have now died. The living link between ourselves and that generation has gone. But a major part of what the government is trying to do with this exercise of ensuring that all secondary schools send people to France and Belgium is to keep alive the memory of what happened to that generation. Yeah? To go back to that problem, that story, as John was saying, which is a story that has many possible meanings, but is a very powerful and evocative story from which I think we can all Mm -hmm. learn. And hopefully tonight's session has helped a bit to start that process. I think it's 8.30 now, so maybe we can continue chatting informally to people, but we ought to draw the formal proceedings to a close. And I'd like to thank our panel very much indeed, and all of you for coming. Thank you.